Hands are still going up. They need pens and note cards. Message note cards, I love that. We apply Matthew 13 to our life, that we are faithful stewards of God's word. That's why we take notes, um, because he's promised that if you're a good steward, steward of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, he'll continue to give you more. But if you're not good stewards of that, he's taken back what you try to grab a hold of. It's kind of like Pastor Denny was saying, you know, God wants to pour out this blessing into your lap, but if your bucket's full of holes, you know, it'll just run right through. And you'll constantly be doing that, trying to grasp a hold of the secrets and the knowledge of God and your word, and it'll be like it just eludes you. It's because you're not being a faithful steward of what he's given you, so... Uh, like Pastor Denny said, this is week three uh, in our series, Letters to the Church. We've been going um, through each church each week and um, looking at what it was that Jesus was saying to that church. And I am blown away, let me just be completely transparent with you, every week I learn something new. Um, I, I can't, it's like I knew that scripture, I knew that letter, I've read that a million times, and he reveals something more. I love that about him, and that's being good stewards, and he'll continue to um, turn his self and show you a little bit more of him, and a little bit more of him. So I just, I, I love it. But we looked at these churches, and if you look at all seven of them, seven of them together, what they lack, it looks a lot like our church today. I mean, you think about it. They've forsaken their first love. They have afflictions. They call themselves poor. They're, they're stricken with poverty. They're allowing false teaching practices, uh, tolerating false prophets. They have a reputation for being alive, and yet they're dead inside. They, they're not obeying God's commands. They have little strength, and they're lukewarm. And it's in 1 Peter 4.17 that it says that it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God, in our house first. Come on, people. You know the scripture that says stop looking at the little toothpick in somebody else's eye when you got a huge plank sticking out of your own. It's time to start judging. Um, oh, good time to think about it. Spring cleaning our house. Open up the windows, throw back the curtains, and let his light shine in today, okay? And that's just what I've been praying. God, let your, your, the truth of your, the light of your truth shine bright today. Shine bright. Um, I like it in the online version, the New King James. It puts these headings over these letters to these churches. Uh, not just the letter to the church at Ephesus, you know. It says it was Ephesus, the loveless church. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Pergamum, the compromising church. Thyatira, the corrupt church. Sardis, the dead church. Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And so today we're going to be looking at Pergamum, which is the, the compromising church. So first, before I even read the scripture to you, 
Let me just share a history of Pergamum, and then we'll read the few verses that we're going to look at, the five verses. The history of Pergamum, which, by the way, when we're studying these, the best thing you can do is Google the city. You realize that these are real places. Okay, you can Google actually the, you can type in Pergamum of ancient Bible times, and you'll see a more, uh, a rendering of what they believe it looked like then. Um, and you can actually look at it now, because it, it's still there. And this one blew my mind. It, it's, it's still amazingly beautiful. So, anyway, the history of Pergamum, though. Pergamum was one of the most important cities of the Greeks under the Roman rule. Part of the city was perched atop this Acropolis, which is a fortified part of the city that sits on the highest hill. That's what Acropolis means. Which near, rose nearly 900 feet. It was atop of Pergamon's Acropolis that was said to be the throne, the seat of Zeus, which Zeus was known as the father of all gods. And they hailed him as savior. Pergamum was authorized to become the first imperial cult center in the east, famous for its magnificent temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine. He was the son of Apollo, who was the god of healing. Asclepius was the city's chief symbol, and it was depicted on their art and on the coins. He was holding a large staff with a serpent wrapped around it. During the first and second centuries, Pergamum was also famous for its extensive hospital and healing sanctuary. Dedicated to the god Asclepius, it stood over half a mile from the Acropolis and the main portions of the city to which it was attached by this paved and colonnaded processional way. The sanctuary of Asclepius covered nearly 154,000 square feet and contained temples, sanctuaries, baths, spas, springs, exercise rooms, libraries, and a small theater, and much, much more. It served not only as a hospital, but also as the social and religious center to the city. It was there, actually, before even in Athens, that they started these Olympic-type games that they would uh, come and compete every four years. Sound familiar? All right, let's read these, and we're going to jump into this. Pergamum. To the church in Pergamum, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel, or the messenger, of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and powerful. God, we thank you that you are always speaking to us, that your heart is always love for us, that your intentions are always best for us, that you have good plans for us, a future, a hope-filled future for us. And God, you want nothing but the best for us and we receive your love right now. We receive your word. We open our ears, open our eyes, and open our heart to receive all you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go through each one of these lines if you didn't know that that's what we've been doing. That's what I plan on doing again. He said, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Back in verse or in chapter 1, when John was getting the revelation and getting these letters from Jesus, he first was shown the resurrected Jesus. Jesus was walking up to him, and the sound of mighty rushing, thundering voice behind me turned around, and he saw. And then he described what Jesus looked like, and one of the descriptions was he had this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Jesus restates here again, these are my words, not John's words. These are my words. These are the words of him who has. A couple weeks ago on Wednesday night, a few weeks ago now maybe, we actually did a little study on this sharp double-edged sword. And how there's the logos word, the written word, and there's the rhema word, the spoken word. And that word put together, when we read the word and speak the word, that's the double-edged sword. And that's when it can cut both flesh and spirit at the same time. And not in a... I know we're like, I mean, especially my warrior mind, I think like, yeah, tear them all up. Yeah. No, it, it says it's so precise it can go in there and split between joint and marrow. Marrow, however you pronounce it. I'm sorry, I just I know Jody's laughing at me over there. <laughs> marrow, 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 marrow. It is so precise, it can get right in there and cut away what's bad and leave what's good. Actually, when I was praying in pre-service, it, it came out of my mouth, and uh, it's happened to me more often than not lately, where uh, I pray things in my mind, it's like, what? What did you just say? And I was praying that, Lord, let that 
let that sword come today because I trust your hand to wield that. I trust your mouth to speak that. And I trust that you can precisely get in there and cut away what's bad and recharge what's good at the same time. And all of a sudden the scriptures started coming, poop, 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 and all these other scriptures about fan into flame, that, that it's placed inside you. You know, he's placed a seed of faith in us. And he can, when his sword goes in there, when we allow ourselves to be open to his cutting like that, that he can get in there and cut away what's bad and it, it lights, it, it fans into flame, it charges that that's good. Uh, but Jesus begins his letter here to the compromising church by announcing himself once again as he is the word of truth. He holds in his mouth the spoken, the both the logos and the rhema word. He is the word come to life. In John it says that. And he is also the spoken word. And so he's announcing himself, here I am. And then he goes into verse 13, I know where you live. Yeah, sometimes that's very comforting. You know, but sometimes it can be a little scary. I mean, it was David in the Psalms that says, where can I go that you are not already? <laughs> You know, I try to hide here. I can try to hide there. And I, he says, man, I can even go to hell. And you are there. Why? Because he's everywhere. He's always there. And so, yes, that, that can be very comforting. But it should put a little holy fear in us. And you've got to remember that everywhere you are, he is. So everything you're listening to you're making him listen to. Everything you're watching, you're making him watch. Everything you're doing, you're making him do. But if you ever get to the place where you're feeling all alone and nobody understands, you're already in the enemy's camp of lies. Because that's just simply not true. You cannot be anywhere where God is not. And he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He said in Psalms 139 that he created a plan. He created a purpose and a plan for you before he even knit you together in your mother's womb. He has everything taken care of for you. A plan, a book written about you. So there is nothing that you can do where you say, well, I'm all alone. Nobody cares. Hebrews describes that we have a savior, a high priest in Jesus that not only sympathizes, oh, I'm sorry you're feeling that way, but he empathizes. He's felt everything you've felt. And he goes on to say, where Satan has his throne. I don't know, but up until, up until I did the research and the studies on the history of Pergamum, I didn't realize, you know, I'm like, okay, it was a bad city. But I didn't realize how bad of a city this was. With that Acropolis, that fortified part of the city atop this 900-foot hill, this fortified seat, they actually called it the seat of the throne of Zeus. 
their God, their God of all gods, the father of all gods. So to say where Satan's throne is or where Satan lives, depending on what translation you're reading, makes sense. Oh, it's because that's where they believe that the God of all gods sets. So he just points them out, shines his little flashlight. God, little flashlight, that was ridiculous, wasn't it? He shines his light on that and says, do you realize that's where Satan is setting? Just think about this a minute, because you you got to understand, there's no accidents, there's no coincidences, there's no, oh, it's just, it just happened that way. From the very beginning, Satan was Lucifer and set out to steal the glory from God. He was created as the worship, if you want to call him leader, and he was to lead all heaven, all nations, all earth into worshiping God. And in doing this, he's like, well, I want some of this. Well, who's he? I mean, look at me. I want this. And from that very beginning, he, his mission was to twist the attention away from God and put it on himself. Always has been. He is not a creator. He can't create anything. Only thing he can do is uh, counterfeit. He takes what God has or has created and he twists it to bring glory back to himself. Think about Zeus. Zeus, he created a god who's called the father of all gods. And he sits upon this highest point in this city that just happens then to focus on healing and medicine. Because it was, I always trip over pronouncing that God's name, Asclepius, Asclepius, the God of medicine, his father was Apollo, who was the God of healing. And then Zeus, the father of all gods, sat upon that seat. Do, do you see any, any parallel here? Who is called the father, our heavenly father? Who sent his son to heal all. <laughs> right? Are you starting to see the picture? That's why Jesus pointed out, I know where Satan lives. Right there. Right there. He's a counterfeiter, was from the beginning, still is. And his true mission is to steal glory from God. He goes on to say, yet you remain true to my name. I love it that God knows how to, and you know, leaders have been taught this, that you need to correct somebody. Please tell them what they're doing good first. <laughs> Then correct them, then give them something to look forward to. And Jesus did that in every one of his letters. I love that. He says, hey, here's what you're doing good. There are some of you there that are remaining true to my name. Listen, followers of Christ 
are called Christians, which means little Christ. I've told you before that it is the divine proposal that Christ gets down on one knee and offers himself to you individually. And all that he went through, everything, every pain, torture, beaten, gorging, and we're getting close to Easter, you need to rewatch that movie, The Passion. Because you need to keep fresh in your mind what he went through. And he gets down on one knee, the divine proposal to you. And he offers himself to you in a holy covenant. So when we say yes to him, we don't follow a religion of yes, you know, do's and don'ts. But it, it's a relationship of him and us and us in him. And we take upon us his name. You know that everything that you physically see is symbolic of what you cannot see. It's all that way, way back from the beginning, all the way into Revelations, into the last chapter. Everything you see is a prototype or, or a type of or a symbol of what is happening or what happens in, this, in the spiritual. This marriage relationship and where we take on, the wife takes on the name of the husband is the same thing that happens in the divine yes, in the divine proposal. When we say yes to Jesus, who calls out to his bride in a holy covenant, which covenant can only be sealed in blood. And he lifts up his cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant I'm making with you then we take on his name. And that's what he's saying. There's some of you there that remain true to my name. He's commending them for not giving up on that name, for owning it as their own, living to bring honor to his name. That's very important. To bring honor to that name. I mean, you know it. I do it. You do it. it, it uh, you know, our, our grandpappies did this. That you were known by your name. Right? Oh, that's the Evans. Oh, well, that's the Messersmiths. You're still known by a name. But we take and lay aside our physical name and we pick up his holy name. And we either bring slander to it or we lift by what we say and what we do. We lift it up and we honor it. Oh, is that what God is like? They point at you and talk about him. It's the way God ordained it. They lived to bring honor to his name. Let me put it in the PBT, the Pastor Brenda translation. They didn't take off their ring, their wedding ring, and slip it in their pocket when they went in public. Which a lot of Christians think that they're just undercover. I'm just there. I'm in doing like undercover ops. It's like, 
Yeah, I bet Jesus wished he could have did it that way instead of going to the cross publicly in the public square. Which, by the way, you know, you need to do some research on that because you're, I hate to pop your little bubbles, but some of our Sunday school stories have taught it wrong. <laughs> and it was on the corner of the public square where people could, they were walking by and doing business and stuff and looking at him and almost eye level, almost eye level to him. You know, and yet, you know, he says, so I honor, I honor you for honoring me, that you are not ashamed of the name that you bear. He goes on to say, you did not renounce your faith in me. They would not deny their trust the great doctrines of the gospel by not departing from the Christian faith. They were kept faithful. Matthew Henry said, our faith will have a great influence upon our faithfulness. You can tell how much a person has faith or trust in God by what they say and do, right? More by what they do than just by what they say. Because sometimes they say all the right things, but do the opposite goes on to say, men who deny the faith of Christ may boast very much of their sincerity and faithfulness to God and conscience, but it has been seldom known that those who let go the true faith retain their fidelity. Usually on that rock on which men make shipwreck of their faith, they make shipwreck of their good conscience, too. And again, PBT, uh, Pastor Brenda translation, um, I had people coming up to me defending adamantly that they had a right, that it was in the Bible, they've got scriptures galore, that they know that they can, oh my goodness, I just looked at your faces and thought, why am I going here? I'm just telling you a story, okay? I'm just telling you what happened in my life. That it was okay for them to socially drink. That they're only having one glass of wine with their girlfriend that she's trying to lead to the Lord. And, and I begged her, please don't. Please don't. You know, yes, I want you to witness to your friend. Yes, I want you to, you know, hang out with her and love on her. But please don't think that you have to do what she's doing in order for her to listen to you. Because I know when I was in high school, I wasn't a bully. Let me just clear, clarify that. But there was something inside me, and I was raised in church, but I went wicked. That if you professed you had a faith that kept you from doing something, that became my mission to make you do it. Let's just see how strong you think you are. And it was horrible. And the minute they did it, I was right on top of them. I knew you were nothing. Does that sound like the enemy? Exactly like him. I'm not that person anymore. That was the dead. That person's dead, okay? Thank you. Thank you. And see, he can take the, the wicked of us, like Paul says, and redeem us. That's his glory. 
But same thing, this person, my friend, was just adamant that it's only one drink, and it was, you know, she had scripture to prove that she could do it, and she's going to do that to witness to it, and then all of a sudden it was, and I'm checking in on her, and I'm like, you know, what time did you get in last night, and, uh, and what did you do? Oh, we're hanging out, and you know, and then it was the bars. I'm like, girl, you never used to, what are you doing, doing like that? And she's like, oh, it's nothing, and I'm just, and now she's bringing more people, and so it's more friends I can witness to. And everything she convinced and argued and defended was her reason for being able to, as a Christian, then became her downfall. And it snowballed. And I've not, it wasn't just one friend. I watched friend after friend after friend do the same thing. That that they demanded was their place and their right to be able, it was their freedom, became the place where it shipwrecked their faith. And Jesus was commending them because even in the place where Satan lives, the seat of Zeus, the throne of Zeus, that they were remaining faithful to him. You did not renounce your faith in me. And I'll tell you a little bit about what he's specifically talking about on those two things. I'll get into that a little bit more. He said, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Of course, he has to point that out one more time. But cultural history, Antipas was one of the first martyrs. In A.D. 100, around there, around 100. But it was the fanatical devotees of this Asclepius, the god of medicine, his fanatical devotees and the supreme magistracy of this Pergamum that persecuted the Lord's people. And he says, my, my faithful witness and he calls him by his name Antipas. They persecuted him even to death. It says little is known about this martyr, but he is heralded here by Christ himself. And then, of course, Jesus calls attention again to where Satan lives. Verse 14. Nevertheless, so here he goes. Now he's going into, we got to take care of some things. Let's throw open the curtains, open the windows. Let's shine some light in here. It's time to clean house. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Listen, he said, there, yes, there are some who remain true. Yes, there are some who did not renounce their faith. Yet, even among those, you're allowing or tolerating these that are influencing others, seducing them to sin. So they weren't completely innocent. Just because we want to sit around like those three monkeys with our eyes covered, ears covered, mouth, I see no evil here, no evil. I'm not looking, I'm not looking. It's like you're still going to be held responsible for that because you're tolerating it. And then he points it out. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, do you... 
Balaam's error, which that starts in Numbers, I believe, chapter 25. I think it even, his story continues even into, you have to push into 31, even 32, 31, 32. But Balaam's error, uh, he had many of them, if you read his story. He did have many errors. Uh, he was uh, known as a seer or a prophet. They were Those words were used synonymously um, back then. But he was more than just a prophet of God, he loved being recognized as the prophet of God. He liked being sought after, and he liked having the influence. He, uh, and if you read his story, it says that at one point when he went with Balak, to try to curse the Israelites that over and over and over again he keeps trying to get a different answer from God keeps trying to get this different answer from God and it even says in parentheses there that he didn't resort to sorcery as was his custom if he didn't get the answer he liked so Balaam had many errors but Jesus points out this one as this is the one that, that actually was his legacy, that he taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to sin or seduce the Israelites to sin because he tried over and over again. He tried to curse them. Actually, God, God set right out before the men even came to summon him to bring him back to Balak because Balak was in, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but Israel was getting ready to I mean, God was like wiping out nation, 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 all these cities right before Israel as they're coming into the promised land. And now they're set up outside of Balak's, Balak's city. And he's like, go get that prophet to come curse these people because I've heard what they've done. I've heard what they've done everywhere else. These people need to be cursed. And there was not even one place that he could go in his city, highest point in his city, that he could see all of Israel at one time camped outside his city. So he calls, before he even gets his men to Balaam, God gives Balaam a word, no. You're not going, you're not going to curse them. They're my people. No. And I don't know, I think it was like three to two times at home, and then he still went with them, and then three different times, I think it was, he's still trying to get a different answer from God, and every time he opened his mouth, all he could pronounce was blessings over Israel, and Balak's like, stop doing that! He's like, I can't help it, it's, you know, it's just, it's just coming out. Well, then it was at that last one, I believe, is where it said that he didn't, he didn't resort to sorcery as was his custom when he didn't get his, his answer. But he taught Balak then a trick to entice or seduce Israel into sinning because he knew if they were sinning, God would have to turn on them. Because he couldn't, sin can't stay where God is. God can't stay where sin is. It's got to be, and he always addressed it, cut it out. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to cut it out. Actually, the New, King's James, New King James Version said that 
Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children. Did you know the word stumbling block is actually a reference to, uh, if you look like a trap, like a mouse trap, like we've got a few of them around here, it's that part that you put the bait on. That trigger is called a stumbling block because it's what entices them to it and, and, and you know, Cut their little neck off. Anyway, that's, he, he taught Balak how to put a stumbling block. Matthew 18, 6 through 7 says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must happen, must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. It says that, in, as in Balaam's days, that the church in Pergamum they were putting a stumbling block before other Christians by enticing them, same thing, like I said in Balaam's time, to eat food sacrificed to idols. To eat food sacrificed to idols for us today is nothing, right? You hear that? It's very common. There's a dead spot right there, so I'll move over. I mean, are, are you... Have you been enticed this last week to eat food sacrificed to idols? No? Okay, I didn't think so. But have you been enticed at school to do... Have you been enticed at your work to... Okay, see, back in their culture, especially we're talking about in Pergamum. So it's not only the, the city that is the throne of the father of all gods, Zeus, but it's also Apollos, the god of all healing, his son, Asclepius, the god of medicine, that in that city, there, that's, that's many gods. <laughs> and the, the big little g-god, that food sacrifice to idols was about as common as, gosh, now it's um, going to Applebee's for half-off appetizers in our culture, right? It's like everybody does that, right? Sandra, I didn't even get a big amen from that. <laughs> Come on, I know you guys do. You know, it was like, oh, okay, I get it. To say you're not going in that Pergamum, in that, in that time, to say you're not going to eat meat, f sacrifice to idols, you would have to remove yourself from all social gatherings. Because all social gatherings had food sacrificed to idols. That's how common it was. Think about some of the things that the world says is common, it's okay, everybody's doing this type of common things that the Christians now are being enticed into doing. I was overwhelmed when I tried to look at the statistics for 2020. Can you believe it's 2020? I still can't believe it's 2020. I was watching a movie last night that was 
so in the future, and it was called 2012. I'm like, well, that's done there, been there, done that. Anyway, the statistics of divorce in the church compared to divorce of those outside the church. The statistics of those who are um, co-inhabiting inside the church compared to those who are co-inhabiting outside the church. Um, the you know, sex outside of marriage, the um, smoking, the drink, you know, you just name them all. It, there's, the statistics are almost equal. We are being seduced. And no, it's not meat sacrificed to idols, but that was their common practice. Our common practice might have a different name, but it's the same idea. It's the same sin. Eating food sacrificed to idols. By committing sexual immorality. Let me just tell you that those who practice sexual immorality is consistently listed as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look it up for yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And why, 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 why? Why? And I started out in youth ministry, and this one was a hard one. Pastor Kerry, boy, he, he made me preach on this all the time. I hated it. I can't talk about sex from the pulpit. He's like, teenagers need to hear this because if, if they're not taught it early, do you know that there is a law of first impression? Did you know that? Or maybe it's not called a first impression. Okay, well, it is in my mind. But anyway, whatever a child, young adult, Usually it's like really early nowadays. Whatever is spoken to them first is what they will set up as their rule. And anything else that comes after that, they always bring it back to that. And they'll judge it to that. So if they first hear by the schools that you can have sex with anybody you want to, but here's a condom. Or, uh, you know, life isn't life until you breathe your first breath. It's just a tissue inside you and you can do what you want to with it. If they hear that first, if they hear a lie, let me just be honest with you. If they hear a lie first, I don't care how many times you preach the truth, it cannot, outside of God's miracle power breakthrough, it cannot change that first impression. That's how important it is that we're communicating these to our students, our kids first. So why is sexually, sexual immorality so important to God? Or he calls it adultery, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage. He also talks about, I'm going to try to stay PG in here, um, spilling your seed. Talking about all that kind of, he says everything you do outside, when you sin outside the body, you know, is one thing, but anything sexual, you actually sin inside your body. You're sinning against your own body. So, he's, he holds such a high standard on sex because of this that he created, male and female, that two will become one flesh, and that when that blood is spilt 
and that holy union, it becomes a blood covenant. Remember, everything we see, everything we do, well, that he says, not everything we see, dear Lord, don't take me that way because Satan twists a bunch of stuff. But he set up these, these things that we can see what's happening in the supernatural. That holy union, that blood covenant, that marriage of, that we have with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God as our Father, is just like the marriage union is supposed to be. Let me put it that way. <laughs> that blood covenant. That's why, that's why he calls it out as anything but. Because, listen, if Satan's number one mission is to take what God set up and twist it, counterfeit it, why would he attack? Why would he be so adamant about attacking um, this holy union? Because it's a holy union. It's a blood covenant. If he can convince you that marriage is nothing more than a piece of paper and you don't need it, then what's this? Guess what they'll call this? It's just a piece of paper. It's just a, some people wrote that. How can you believe that? You'll actually doubt the bond that God says he has and wants with you. If, you. if Satan can twist your understanding that, yeah, this holy union thing, this covenant thing, it's not important. I'm going to go on. It's getting really quiet in here. In verse 15, oh yeah, I got to really wrap up. Okay, I'm wrapping up. I'm lying, but I'm wrapping up. I'm repenting and lying at the same time. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember when we talked about the church in Ephesus, he addressed that again. But in Ephesus, he was telling them, you hate the Nicolaitans as much as I do. That was actually a commending them for hating the practice of the Nicolaitans. But here in Pergamum, he's saying, you're tolerating them. You're letting them infect, seduce. And remember, it was the Nicolaitans, it was that religious sect that would woo the hearts of the Christians from being completely loyal to God. They would indulge in whatever feels good, do it. That was their motto. If it feels good, do it. Oh, everything's permissible for us. It's okay, you can do what you want. God knows my heart. Sounds a lot like today. He said, Ephesus hated them as I do. You tolerate them. In 1 John 5.21 it says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And then he goes into verse 16. Now he's telling them what to do. Repent. Pretty simple. You need to repent. You need to stop this right now. Cut this out. And he said, otherwise, I will come. This is Jesus saying that. I will come to you soon. And I will. PBT. I will come soon. I'll deal with you. And then I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
And you know what, let me just be really honest, the first few times I read that, I'm like, well, that's not a bad thing. You know, if they're, if they're among us, and if Jesus, well, come on, Jesus, come back and, you know, cut them up. Fight against them. Get them out of there. Until you put a face with that. But, oh, so the one I'm tolerating is my spouse? The one I'm tolerating is my child. I'm allowing them to do things that I know is seducing, enticing, not only their own heart away from complete loyalty to God, but also now it's infecting others. And, and I just, well, I don't want to correct them. You know, God loves them and God knows their heart. I don't know why we feel like we're doing a, a service to our kids when we don't correct them. You're actually doing quite a big disservice to them. As a matter of fact, you're playing Russian roulette with their life. Not just their life, but their spiritual eternity. You know, I've had parents leave churches um, before because we, we preach, or I've preached very, you know, stern on, um, don't, no, if they're if they're doing something wrong, correct them. I'm not talking about taking a rod and beating them over the head with them, but tell them no, that's, that's wrong. Well, you know, you say it a hundred times, and then, you know, you just, what? No, now it's okay because you want to be lazy about parenting? No, you're hurting them by allowing them to continue to do things that are wrong. Because you're playing Russian roulette, and as a matter of fact, you're, let's just call it as it is, you're, you're being a god over your own life by saying, well, they'll have tomorrow, or when they get such and such age. Now, I'm not saying don't sit down with a two-year-old and try to reason, okay? Come on. Just tell them no, go on. Well, then you what? Yep. One minute later, you're going to have to say no again. Yeah, one minute later, you're going to have to say no again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as they get older, you can reason a little bit more with them and a little bit more with them. And, you know, so at first, it's going to be don't do this. Why? Because I said so, period. And I've had parents say, well, that's, you should tell them why. No, they should learn. <laughs> they don't know. They don't need to know everything. They don't need to know the why to everything. Because have you seen adults shipwrecking their faith because they don't know the why? Well, why would God do this? You don't have to know. So it, it's okay when you're correcting your children to say, because I said. You're actually teaching them. Anyway, I'm jumping off that one real fast. Okay, repent, fight against them. So it sounds good until we put a face with that. We don't want Jesus to come up, to show up, and fight with the sword of his mouth against our child, do we? No. So he says it's your job. They're among you, your friends, your family, your children. Deal with them. Come on, cut this out, get rid of it, it's not okay, deal with it. And he said that the, you will not be found innocent, those that tolerate it. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. And I love it, that was the, the word went right along with what I'm preaching today. 
um, open your heart, open your ear. You have to hear. He's trying to teach you. He's not trying to... He's, he's not, he is God of judgment, right? He is the great judge, but he's God of love. He don't want to, he's trying to cry out here and say, repent now, repent now, repent now. Hurry up, get this right, come on, repent. Why? Because when I do come, I have to judge. And there's not going to be any more time when I come. The time is near. He says over and over again, the time is near, the time is near. Uh, at the beginning of Revelation, remember it said, Blessed is one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. Blessed are those who take it to heart. What is written? Hear, understand, and respond accordingly. It's at the end of every one of these letters, and it's throughout the entire Bible. You cannot just hear the words. You cannot just receive the words. You cannot just know there's a God. You can't just come to church on Sunday. So what are you living? Those that love me, do as I command. If you love me, you will do as I command. It's listening and doing. It's faith and deeds says to him who overcomes remember at the end of every one of these letters it's to the overcomer to the overcomer to the overcomer not the squanderer not the wasteful one not the lazy one not the one that's too busy excuse filled or apathetic it's the overcomer remember we learn that overcomers know what's important they do what's important, and they prioritize what's important. That's an overcomer. And, oh my goodness, I'm going to wrap this up as quickly as I can by telling you to the promises that he gave, the rewards he's giving, goes back to the Old Testament, Balaam. When Balaam taught Balak how to seduce Israel into sinning. A plague broke out on Israel because the Moabite women were pushed there to the Israelites, and which was what he taught them to do. They would seduce the men by their, I guess they didn't push the ugly ones out there. I don't you know, let's just be honest, you know. They seduce the men into, come on, you know, let's eat together. Now they're eating the meat, you know, that was sacrificed to idols. And, hey, and everything's permissible. God knows your heart. He loves all. Nobody can stand up against you. Let's go into your tent. You know, again, I'll keep it PG. Um, and so this plague broke out on all Israel. Again, exactly what Balaam told Balak would happen. Because God cannot allow sin in the camp. He will have to turn to it. He will have to deal with it. And he gives you a chance. Are you going to deal with it or you want me to come and deal with it? Let me tell you, you, you just want to deal with it. Okay? Deal with it. Anyway. While they're all, because then Moses and instructed and Aaron the priest. And they're all, God's saying, cut it out. Get it out. Actually, bring everybody that's done this. Bring them up here. We've gonna, 
again, yeah, we're going to cut it out. Get rid of it completely. While they're crying out in repentance before the entrance to the tent of meeting, an Israelite man comes walking with a Moabite woman hand in hand right through them all. And starts taking her right into his tent. Actually took her right into his tent. In front of, so everybody, could you imagine? Everybody's like, you know, what, 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 what's going on? Thought we were repenting and not going to do this anymore. What's going on? Takes her right into the tent. And Phineas, the grandson of, the, of Aaron, the priest, saw it, picked up a knife... And again, keeping it PG, went into the tent and dealt with it. And when he came back out, the plague stopped. And God said of Phineas, he and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of my name. And made atonement for Israel. And so this blessing, this reward that Jesus is saying is for those who overcome in Pergamum and for us. To cut out those that are seducing and enticing. And cut out the, and I'm not talking about just the people. Again, if, if your mind is going to people, stop that. Look at our house. We're talking about looking in our house. Are we being seduced? Then that's something you need to change in your heart. If you just go think that it's all your fault and you go after that one person, somebody else will pop up. It's in your heart. You need to get out, cut out what's enticing you and seducing you. Phineas was rewarded with an everlasting priesthood for the zeal against these seducing sins. So the heavenly high priesthood is the reward of those promised to those who are zealous for the name that we bear. God's name. That I will remain true to his name. I will not denounce the faith I have in him. And he said, I will give them some of the hidden manna. Only the priest could go in to the sanctuary, to the Holy of Holies, where that hidden manna was. He said, I'll give them the hidden manna, which he's saying to those that overcome, I'll open up. And he has direct access right into the Holy of Holies with me. He said, and I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. And, and let me just, I don't have time to get into this, but this is going back to that, that breastplate that the priests wore at that time, and there were stones on them that represented the 12 tribes. They actually had etched in the stone, in the stone, not on the stone, which was a miracle in itself. Which, by the way, they just found one of those stones. Four years ago? Two, two or three years ago, I think it was. Anyway, but in, 
They had the 12 stones, but then there was also a Urim, U-R-I-M, Urim stone that was called God's stone. And that was, some say it was tucked into a fold in the breastplate. Others say that it was behind the breastplate, but it was in the breastplate. But that Urim stone, inside it, bore the unspeakable name, holy name of God, that only the priest and God knew. So when you look at, I will give you for the overcomer, I will give him a white stone. That Urim stone was a white stone of pure, it says of pure whiteness, which means perfect light. That I'll give him a a white stone with a new name written on it. And it said known only with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Many scholars say that that is going to be just like he, he um, talks about it again over in chapter 3 when he talks to the church at Philadelphia, I believe. He talks about that, my name. I'm going to write my name on him. That he's going to give him a white stone with a new name. He's going to show him a part of... He's going to show the overcomer a part of him that, that nobody else has seen yet. And he's going to write that name on that stone, a, a revelation, and given only to them. All right, here it is. Would you just stand? We're closing. We have to. But I've got to ask you a couple questions. Looking at the church of Pergamum, and I know this was a hard one because it's the compromising church. And let's just be honest, that's what we fight with right now in our culture is the compromising church. Um, I mean, I, it's something we deal with daily in our house. I'm sure you deal with it daily in your house. We deal with it everywhere we go. I, I deal with it every time I get in the car. If I don't hit the cruise set, I'm constantly battling speeding. Let's just be honest. Uh, you know, every place we go, we're battling against compromise. Jesus' warning was stop tolerating it. Stop tolerating it. And he, seriously, in your own life. Now, if there's people in the church that are publicly declaring and enticing, seducing people away from complete loyalty to God, then the leadership of the church has to deal with that. Yes. Um, to not deal with it would be this, you're tolerating it and we're going to be held. Actually, remember, all these letters are addressed to the pastor of. The messenger of, the angel of. Not that I'm an angel, but I know I'm not. Anyway, um, but addresses why? Because it ultimately falls back on the responsibility of the leadership. Of the leadership and the pastor. And so we will deal with them. But what I'm trying to get us to look at together as a whole right now is not people and point, ah, sinner, sinner, you know, uh, ourselves. Look at your own life. That's what I'm trying to get us. Is there, is there something inside of you 
that you're allowing, if it's a person or a thing or a group of people, um, whatever, to seduce you away from complete loyalty to God. Here's an easy way, that's what I started to say, here's an easy way to know if, if they are. Um, because people say this, they stand on the word, they have a thousand scriptures to declare why they can fill in the blank. Do this one thing or not do this one thing, whatever it is. Let me just say, it's pretty clear to figure out if it's God or not. If it draws your loyalty back and releases more freedom in your flesh, it's not God. Uh, like my girlfriend in drinking. I tried to convince her. I know the scriptures. I know it might be okay. But I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I'm war I kept telling her, I'm warning you. If it goes any farther, it's already sucking you in. Uh, the people that adamantly stand for fill in the blank. If it draws your loyalty back away from God and gives your flesh more freedom, it's wrong. Instruction, repent quickly. Reward, overcomers have this priestly covenant of lasting intimacy with Jesus. That was the reward he was giving them. Why? When you honor my name. The name that you took on when you said the yes. Bring honor to that name. Remain faithful to me. Again, anything else he calls, what? Adultery. Idolatry is adultery. Just one's flesh, one's spirit. Whether it was undermining the word of God, oh, God doesn't expect you to do that anymore. Yeah, that's Old Testament. Oh, that, yeah, that's old-fashioned. You know, it's common nowadays. This is just what we do. A socially accepted practice. Sex outside of marriage, drinking, lying, being disobedient to your parents, rebelling against authority. Everybody's doing it. If it pulls your love, affection, and loyalty from God, it's wrong. And it is extremely wrong if you are the one enticing others to do the same. God never went easy on this. He repeated and instructed to his children, cut this out. Again, he's talking about that word, that double-edged sword that comes from his mouth is the only way that it can be cut out. And it's right here. It's in our heart. Again, you heard it. He, she, it, it was a prophecy this morning. God doesn't want anything else except your heart. This is where everything comes in and goes out. Jesus even says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. And that's what I was trying to convince my girlfriend. Yeah, you're right. That one drink might not cause you to go to hell. But if what starts coming out of you is, I need more drink. I need more drink. Oh, I need to hang out with more people. Well, uh, hey, still haven't seen any come to church yet. Are you still witnessing to them? It's what comes out. 
So would you just bow your head? I just want to spend just a couple minutes and ask you those two questions. Are you tolerating something or someone in your life that is drawing your heart or your loyalty away from God? Are you tolerating something or someone in your life that's enticing or drawing your heart, your loyalty away from God? And the second question would be, have you been the one enticing others? See, I don't know why human nature, sin nature, that's why, but why people think that they can feel better about themselves when they make others just as you know, as bad or worse than they are. That's kind of like my testimony was. I don't, I don't, it's sin. It's just sin. It's the enemy. It's completely Satan. That's what it is. That he is the op- opposer, the accuser, the finger pointer of the brothers. He entices you. He woos you into, you know you want to do this. You can do this. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, you don't have to do that anymore. That's Old Testament. Nobody does that anymore. It's okay. You want to do that. And the second you do it, he's the first one to point his crooked finger back at you and say, look at you. Look who you are. Look what you did. You call yourself a Christian. And then if we don't quickly repent and quickly give our heart back to God, and I mean complete heart back to God, we perpetuate that same thing over and over again to where we feel like that hamster on that wheel that can't ever get out. So how do we feel better about ourselves? Well, let's pull some people in. Because if I have a group of friends around me and we're all doing the same thing, well, we can feel pretty good about doing it. And it doesn't make it right. Actually, Jesus says it would be better. (laughs) Woe to them. So let's just take a few minutes. If you've got that music, could you just put that music on? And we're going to open up the altars right now. And I want... I don't want a doom and gloom. Oh, man, you know type of a response even though right now it feels heavy remember what the word was that was spoken and what I was preaching to you was that he's trying to say it's not good for you you got to cut this out because it's not good for you and he's trying to woo you and draw you to him and his his heart he knows what's best for you you are like I said playing Russian roulette with your life With your eternity. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. When we finally realize, what was I thinking? God, why was I thinking this was okay? This is not okay. It's the husband that that leans over. 
whispers your name and calling you back and even crawls up on a cross himself all beaten, bruised, bloodied and says, no, you, you sit here, I'll go there for you. And takes all the punishment of all the sin and all the wrong upon himself to redeem his bride. And let's just be honest. We weren't the perfect, pure bride that we were supposed to be or we are today. But with the same blood... With the same love, he holds out his hand and that's what he's calling us back. Come on. Into that pure relationship. So let's just spend time and then we want to pray as a staff. We want to pray for every one of you. Uh, If you're here today and you haven't said the divine yes, (laughs) receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All you have to do is cry out to him right now. He's already been calling through my voice and through the voice you're hearing right now and inside yourself. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And just say, forgive me for all I've done before. I lay it all down and I take upon myself your name. Me and you, you and me. walk this day forward to bring honor to his name with all your strength all your might all your heart and all your love and affection on him for him and he says as you draw near to me I'll draw near to you you know the picture at a wedding is that the husband stands at the altar and waits for the bride to come to him why we call you to the front to an altar see the picture so come on can we just press in can we come to the altar I want you to just take time right now this letter of from the the, the church at Pergamum was not one of, oh, it's hopeless, it's lost, they're no good for nothing, but it's of a redeeming. God here, so far, this is the third one, but so far this lasting priestly covenant of intimacy with Jesus is the most extreme. Reward. Noted so far. So let's just say yes. Come on, let's just push in and say yes. And God, if there's anything right now, we just surrender to your word, the the sword, the double-edged sword. We trust you to cut out anything that's compromising in our hearts, in our lives right now. We, we lay it all open before you. trust your knife. We trust your sword. We trust your hand to cut out those things the 
that need to be cut out. Come on, some of you right now, I, I, I hear it in my own mind. You're, you're being told to speak this out. You've got something that you need to confess out. It's not for people around you. It's so that it comes out of you. And you're, you've got something that the Holy Spirit is showing you inside of you that needs to come out. And he's cutting it and you need to get it out. So you need to speak that out. And that's just between you and God, okay? The Bible does say to confess your sins one to another so that you will be healed. So if you're feeling in your heart, you need to go to somebody and, and confess it. And But what you're doing is you're getting it out. Don't say it so that you can pick it back up again and take it out with you. Does no good. But he's cutting something out and I just heard him say that you need, he's cut it out and you need to speak it out to get it out of your life. So speak it out. Just between you and him. Come on. And just receive that healing. He's at that same time, he's cutting out what's bad. He's charging what's good. So if you start hearing him speak over you, you are my child. I am pleased with you. I have purposes, a purpose for you. I have plans, hope, and a future. You're the apple of my eye. You're my princess. You're my prince. You are my called one. You're my appointed one. I am wholly pleased with all of you. I sing and dance. When you start hearing, so that's, see, he's taking out what's bad and he's putting in what's good. He's charging what's good. At the same time, he's cutting out what's bad. Yes, 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 yes. Staff, can you just go around and start speaking those things over them as, as you're touching them, hand on them. And if God tells you something that he showing you and be faithful with it and speak it out pray over it there is freedom guilt shame is gone now in the name of Jesus there is no guilt there is no shame in confessed forgiven sins it's gone it's washed out God says I throw it as far as the east is from the west it's gone is no guilt, there is no shame in a confessed forgiven sin. I'm washed, I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm clean. 
says he gives us his robe of righteousness takes our sin that was red as scarlet which is funny because I mean that's you know blood and by his blood it makes us white as snow with God. God and you, you and God, Jesus as one. That was your prayer that we would be one with you and then one with each other. Holy Spirit, move right now. Speak. Move. yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all sin. See, when we pick up our cross, like I said last week, it's you can see the picture of his blood dripping off that cross will continue to cleanse us as we follow him. So don't get caught up in the little things that will try to trip you up. Entice you, seduce you, put a stumbling block in front of you. Don't get don't even get involved in. Don't get don't get tripped up by that. Look at God, look at his heart. Let him have your heart and continue to follow him. He knows better. He has better plans and dreams for your life than you could ever, ever, ever imagine.